jumping into a brand new series as we kick off the summer entitled Runaway. We're going to be taking a look, uh, a four-week look with a special Father's Day separate message um, in between. We're going to take a four-week look at a four-chapter book in the Old Testament is about a minor prophet. And it's not minor because he was a lesser prophet, but he, it's minor because it's just a smaller book. And so we're going to be taking a look at a minor prophet named Jonah. Now, Jonah is really seen as, um, almost described as a prodigal prophet. It's a prodigal prophet because really it, it, he's the unlikely character to be the prophet of God. Uh, God gives him a command and he runs the other way. And then he, he follows through and finally obeys God. But then even after he obeys God, he's a little upset and angry about it. And so he's, he's really the unlikely character. Um, but what I love about this story is that it's real. And it's a mixture of the good and the bad. And that uh, sometimes in movies and in stories, we think of characters as static. So like someone is always good or someone is always bad. But in this story, everything gets mixed together, almost like a giant stew, okay? And, and that's really more closely connected to reality, isn't it? Because we're not all good, and we're not all bad, and sometimes we're a little bit of both, and sometimes we're running after God, and sometimes we're running away from God, and that there's this mixture, and that the only constant in this story that we're going to talk about is God himself, and that the people that Jonah talks to, and then Jonah himself, are going to have ups and downs. In fact, this story is actually often compared to what's known as the story of the prodigal son in the New Testament in, in Luke chapter 15. And, and if you're unfamiliar with that story, it's a parable that Jesus tells about a father with two sons. And who are gonna, he's going to share his inheritance with his two sons. But the one rebellious son wants to find his identity by breaking all the rules. He says, Dad, I want you to give me my inheritance now. I'm leaving. And so he goes and he wastes all his money and he makes horrible decisions and choices, but ultimately comes back and kind of repents and, and humbles himself before the Father. But then that's, that's really the first two chapters of Jonah. We're going to see this prophet really take and run away from God and really be this rebellious prophet. But then in chapters three and four, we actually see the flip side because in the story of the prodigal son, this rebellious son returns and the father actually welcomes him and celebrates him and throws a party and a feast and, and goes out of his way to just celebrate the returning of his son. And this bitter brother actually says, wait a second, you're going to celebrate this guy, the one who was rebellious, the one who ran away from you when I've been here the whole time and you haven't given me the same treatment? And while one son was prodigal in that he tried to identify himself with his rebellion, the other son was also prodigal because he tried to identify himself based off religion. So where one tried to break all the rules, the other one tried to keep all the rules, and, it was, and he was bitter. Where the one rebellious son was broken, the religious son was judgmental and bitter, and neither of which understood that as sons of their father, they had access to the inheritance. And so chapters one and two of the book break down and really talk about the concept of really this rebellious side of Jonah 
And then he's going to get his act together and do what he was commanded. But then he's going to get really judgmental <laughs> about lesser than people than himself. And so then he's going to be this religious kind of bitter side. And neither of which are good. And so we see this kind of stew, this mixture of good and evil, right and wrong, like just unlikely characters, people that should obey but don't, people that shouldn't obey but do, and that the only consistent character, the only static character in this story is actually God himself and his goodness and his compassion. And so the same compassion, the same goodness that was available to Jonah, that was available to the people that he prophesied to, is available to you and to me. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Jonah uh, chapter 1. It's in, the, it's in the later part of the Old Testament. Uh, and if you need a Bible, you can actually uh, pick up a Bible on your way out. This is our gift to you. And I will also include the verses on the screen. Now, if you are, as you are turning to Jonah chapter 1, uh, I just want to really start our conversation off by highlighting how much I love digital GPS. Right, because now you can literally, you, you can just hop in your car and you just speak into a GPS device or your phone and it just gives you turn-by-turn navigation. Uh, I'm fearful that we have a generation that has no idea how to get anywhere and knows nobody's numbers, right? Let's just plug in and think about it. How many numbers do you actually have memorized right now, right? You remember when getting your name in the phone book was like a thing? Like, yeah, we made it. Look, here we are. Like, right? There's a, there's a video. It's, it's pretty funny. You can actually look it up online of um, some college students were given a rotary phone, and they couldn't figure out how to use it. <laughs> but we've come a long way in technology, and, and one of the ways that's awesome is, is how amazing GPS is these days. You, you don't need to print out maps. You don't need to do this. You can just say, you give the location. And if you have two things, if you have where you are, and where you need to go, they'll give you directions. Now that's important to remember later that you know where you are, where's your starting point, and then also where is your desired location and point. Because if you have those two things, you can get turn-by-turn navigation. And what I love about GPS is that even when we get it wrong, even when we make a wrong turn, GPS does not yell at you, right? It doesn't yell at you, like, what are you thinking, right? That, that's what we have spouses for, um, and, right? It's, come on, it's true. Whoever's in the shotgun seat is always the better driver, am I right? It's true, it's true. It doesn't matter which spouse is driving, it, you become really aware of all the other cars on the road when you're in the passenger seat, don't you? And so, he's like, no, we gotta turn here, no, we don't. And, and some people know streets, some people know landmarks. You know what I'm talking about, right? Well, it's, how do you get there? Well, you go past the Shell Station and turn left, and then you're going to go past a big uh, oak tree and turn it right. Like we go, and, we, and other people say, well, it's on this street and this street. Well, now that we have GPS, we don't necessarily need it. It just says, turn here, turn here. And if you miss a turn, it doesn't yell at you. In fact, all it says is recalculating. I love that. No, no matter how many wrong turns you make, the GPS just turns and says, recalculating. I was actually excited to learn this week that you can actually purchase celebrity voices to be the voice of your GPS. Did you know this? <laughs> you can have Arnold Schwarzenegger give you directions 
how exciting would that be? Turn now. <laughs> Do it. It'd make driving so much more exciting. Right? And so I love that in life, we have a God like in GPS that when we make a wrong turn or when we try to go the other way, it's not just simply scolding us. It's just recalculating. And the truth is, is that God's devotion is greater than our detours. Isn't that awesome? That God's, God's devotion to us, his pursuit of us is greater than our detours. And that when we make wrong turns in life, and we make plenty of them, that God's not scolding us, but just as recalculating. And that through all of our mistakes, through all our ups and downs, God actually works through us. And ultimately, <laughs> we end up where we need to be in the right moment. So we're in Jonah chapter 1. Some background in the book. The story of Jonah is one of the most debated stories in the Old Testament. Because for those that might not be familiar with the story, um, it is a story of a prophet who was told to go to the city of Nineveh. And the city of Nineveh uh, was seen as the most evil city in the time. It was the capital city of Assyria. And Assyrians were known for just brutal, <laughs> brutal treatment of, of people they took captive. Talking about, yeah, with kids in the room, I'll, I won't go into detail. But like anything that you would see on movies right now, th they would do that, but then worse in terms of their torture of their prisoners. In fact, uh, Nineveh is actually situated in present-day Iraq, and that some consider actually the descendants of Nineveh and that area ultimately actually um, came from where we have ISIS and that. And so it's the same location, same, it's like great, 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 you know, 3,000 years, generation down the line, the basis of what we actually know as ISIS today. And so that same area, same thing. So before we knock Jonah for being willing to run away from God, let's remember that God commanded him, hey, go into the heart of the most hated evil city in the world and preach repentance. And he's like, oh, not me. <laughs> no, I think you meant a different Jonah. You know, I think, no, no, I think you meant Jonah with no H at the end. Okay, that, not me, I'm different, different guy. Now, some people debate whether or not this story actually happened because in it we find actually that Jonah ultimately gets saved by a giant fish. And it's kind of crazy, except for the fact that Jesus, we'll find out in a little bit, actually quotes this story. And so the, we can debate whether something is historical or figurative or literal and, and where this falls in line. But wherever you fall on that spectrum, the truth of really can be pulled from the story that applies to us still today. I believe that it literally happened because Jesus actually quoted it later. And so when in doubt, I'm going to go with Jesus on this line. And, and then also other prophets talk about it. And whereas people are not debating the reality of, say, Elijah or Elisha, um, and if the same line or Jeremiah or Isaiah. And so I'm not going to go actually as far and debate the existence of Jonah because other people quoted him. They have historical, um, really, cities and records. So Nineveh is a real city. Um, the king that he served under, it's a real king. And so there's actual historical facts found throughout the story. So we're going to interpret it as literal. 
But even if you have questions on it, even if you get caught up, no, there's no way a giant fish could have caught Jonah. Um, just, just stay with us and let's find out what the truth is that God really has for us in this story. Because when I grew up in a church setting, uh, in, a, in a, just a lovely tucked in shirt Baptist church, uh, we had these things called flannel graphs. Do you guys remember that? And uh, flannel graphs, these things you'd put on. And what was great was the stories always mixed. And so the characters were already were always different sizes. So like you'd have like a person, but then a sheep, and there was always a cloud and like a sun, and they all like mixed. And I remember the story of Jonah because there was always just a giant fish on the flannel graph, and that meant we got goldfish for our snack. And so anytime Jonah was coming in, we were excited for the snack. We knew goldfish was coming down the pike. So I just grew up thinking, oh, that's what Jonah is about. It's about fish and, and then the goldfish cracker. And, and then when I actually studied that there was a deeper, deeper truth that in the middle of good and evil, in the middle of right and wrong, in the middle of obeying God and disobeying God and the mixture of culture and ethnicities and races and all of this, that the one constant in all of this is the goodness and the compassion of God himself. And so that's what we're gonna find in our story today. So let's go ahead and begin reading here in Jonah chapter one. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amaitai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flees to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, I want you to notice this pattern, and we're going to break this down read a little bit later, but everything starts when Jonah receives a word from the Lord. Everything starts when he receives a message from God. And when he receives a message from God, he then receives a mission from God. So the message of God leads to a mission of God, and then we have Jonah's response, which is fleeing and literally running the opposite direction. And so he, he's running away, he goes in a boat. But in verse four, it says, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and cried out to his God. They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought to us that we may not perish. So to give you some understanding in this context, Jonah completely ran away from the command of God. He was seen as a Hebrew or an Israelite or a person of God and and identity was very much wrapped up in your country. And so in your country and in your ethnicity and in your race, it was connected. And so it was typically like your race, your ethnicity first, and then they just assumed you believed in that God of that ethnicity. And so he was in these boat with pagan sailors. And I believe he went down to the bottom and fell asleep, not because he was tired, but because he was probably sick. <laughs> Have you ever been so stressed out that you seem paralyzed, that you can't move? Right, that you just can't function, 
that you're like, you don't know what to do, and you're struggling with something so bad that you can't, you can't even move or think straight. I think this was the same thing with Jonah, that he went down to the bottom of the boat really to hide. <laughs> and you know the storm has to be bad when people who drive boats for, the li- for their living are scared for their life, and so scared that they start throwing their cargo overboard. Because cargo means profit. So they are literally scared for their life to the point of throwing their own profit and equipment overboard. And they don't know what to believe. And so these pagans say, hey, if you have a God, if you have a belief in somebody, cry out to that person. And maybe whoever's God is causing this trouble will calm it and we'll get saved. And so they call out to Jonah, Jonah, what are you doing We are going to die. How can you sleep in this moment? Who is your God? Who are you? And they said in verse seven, and they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Now, casting lots is idea of kind of superstitious chance Again, everything in this story is like unlikely, right? And so like, let's cast lots to find out who this is. But Jonah knows that it's because of him that they're in this situation. So even in that, it falls onto Jonah. And they said to Jonah, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? Isn't it interesting that this verse, verse 8, was written about 2,700 years ago, but yet we still follow the same pattern today, right? When you meet somebody new, what do you say? Hi, what is your name? Where do you come from? What do you do, right? Everything in our culture is defined by where do you come from and what do you do? Even in this situation, they say, Jonah, okay, who are you? (laughs) What do you do? Where do you came from? What happened? And it's a question of identity. And Jonah responds in verse 9, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now, isn't it interesting that in this moment, when he's finally caught, that he acknowledges that God is the God of sea and land? So this doesn't make sense, does it? Like, he tried to run from God by going on the sea that he later acknowledged God created, right? This is the little kid running into the other room when he did something wrong and going like this. Can you see me? No? Okay. I'm not here, Dad. Nope. Okay. And if you've parented little children, you know this is true. Um, <laughs> I was in the other room a couple weeks ago, and... Um, and Chloe, our little three-year-old, just runs into the room. And I was just one room over. Um, and she goes, uh-oh, Daddy, fire. There are some words that you kind of like slow to re- respond to. Um, fire is not one of them. <laughs> okay? I'm like, what? She goes, Daddy, fire, dangerous. I'm like, yes, it is. And I go sprinting out. And somehow she had gotten into our cupboards, into the back cupboards, and found a matchbook, dumped it, and lit one at three. Oh. Whew. 
I'm glad that both we and her are still here today. Um, and we had a little burnt mark like this, a little circle on a mat. And then when I was like, Chloe, and she looked at me like this, she goes, and she took off running. And she tried to hide from me. Because she knows she's like, well, one, we've since, I thought we had all the matches put away. It was deep in a cupboard, and now they're up super high and away from everything. But as soon as she was found out, she went sprinting as if the back corner of her room was safe from mom and dad, right? Like, that's, this is what Jonah does here. Jonah knows he's running away from God, but now he's in this massive storm. He gets called out, and he says, okay, I'm a Hebrew God of the land and the sea. So to run from God, he goes into a spot where God's still in control. Verse 10, the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had already told them. Verse 11, then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more temptuous. He said to them, pick up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Now again, this is where it gets kind of beef stew-like. It sounds noble, it says, you know what? I will sacrifice myself for you. Throw me into the sea so that you can be saved. And that sounds noble, but he could also be saying this, you know what? I'm so done with this, just throw me in the sea and end it. In some ways, it's the most selfish thing he can do, but it's also the most noble thing he can do. It's both good and it's bad. It's a mixture. We don't know quite how to feel. We don't know his feelings behind it, but we know that God is right here. So he says, just throw me into the sea, whatever his motive, just, just, let's just end this. But now here's again, the unlikely part of the story. Here are these pagan sailors. Notice their compassion in verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. So these pagan sailors actually are more compassionate than Jonah. They said, no, 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 we won't do that. We'll try to save you. And it's not going to work. Verse 14, so they called out to Jonah's God, the one true God, the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us the innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as, as you pleased. So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from raging. And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. A lot of people make vows to God in the middle of a difficult moment, don't they? Okay, God, if you just do this one thing for me, then I will follow you. But what's interesting about verse 16 is that actually they made vows after it. So it already calmed down, and so they actually made vows and sacrifices after. So that's an act of worship or a sign of repentance or a sign of obedience, that they saw a movement of God, and then they responded accordingly. And so Jonah's thrown overboard. But in verse 17, we see, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So God sends a fish. God sends an underwater Uber. Okay? And it seems, it seems crazy, okay? 
until the fact that God created the universe and sent a storm and calmed it like that. And so if God can do the supernatural, then everything is possible. And the one thing that's consistent in this story is God's compassion. He goes to this kind of mixed up, messed up prophet Jonah and says, I want you to prophesy to Nineveh. Give them a chance to repent. So he shows compassion to this evil city. He then shows compassion to Jonah. Jonah runs away, rebels. But then God shows compassion on these pagan sailors. And then goes as far and actually shows compassion to Jonah by saving him. Jonah should have died at that point. Right? He, he made his own situation. He deserved to die at that point. Yet even in his unbelief, even in his rebellion, God showed compassion to him and saved him because he had a greater plan for Jonah. And so if you're taking notes, you can write this down, that what we learn from Jonah chapter one is that God's compassion is connected to his power and not our permission. God's compassion is connected to his, his power, not our permission. As soon as we get into the role of deciding who deserves what, we've now replaced ourselves with God and we've become the judges on America's Got Spiritual Talent, right? Judges on all those TV shows, whether it's The Voice or American Idol or America's Got Talent um, or any of those, they sit there, someone does something, you go, yes, I like that. You can move on, right? And we love that, why? Because we ourselves like to be judged. We do. We like to be judged. We tend to view ourselves higher than other people. For example, in the past 30 years, there's been multiple studies about the idea of gratefulness and generous. Every single time, people rated themselves as more grateful and generous than the average person. So we do this, right? We want grace for us, compassion for us, judgment for other people. If we're late to a meeting, it's, well, because of circumstances, situation, I'm sorry, this happened, and we explain. But if somebody else is late, we're like, how dare you? If we do something, you know, my bad, my mistake, I messed up, you know, give me grace. But if somebody else wrongs us, we're like, no. Law, judgment, they deserve this. And everybody has a line because it's human nature. Even the movement that we see in culture today of love everybody, love wins. Isn't it interesting that when people try to claim love wins, who is the only group seen as judgmental? Christians. So I've had conversations with people and they say that, you know, well, you're just being judgmental. I mean, not to get picky, but so you're judging me by calling me judgmental? See, everyone's got a line. Everybody has a line. Everybody does. And as soon as somebody crosses our line, that's when we get upset. But we're going to find out over these four chapters in Jonah that the Hebrew people, that the, these quote-unquote evil Ninevites... <laughs> 
actually are all recipients of the compassion and the grace and the goodness of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The, the claim to believe in Jesus is exclusive, but the audience is actually the most inclusive of any religion in the world. Go to other locations and other religions and places and ask yourself if women and children are treated better or worse than in gospel-centered situations. Studies show that um, they say that divorce is the same rate in Christian households as in non-Christian households. But the problem with that study is that they just ask people, are you a Christian or not? And 30 years ago, people would just say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. And they just made a claim. Well, in new studies where they actually say that um, okay, do you claim to be a Christian, but do you read your Bible? Do you go to church? Do you, and do you actually live that out? Actually, divorce rates are down. Satisfaction rates in marriages are higher. Relationships with kids are better. Growth is stronger. Because God is this picture of the good for all, but there's still a requirement for repentance and following him. It's this beef stew, it's this mixture. We're both good and we're bad, that we're right and we're wrong, and we win and we lose. And in the middle of all of our mess, God is consistent and he is compassion and it is based on his power, not our permission. God does not need our permission to be compassionate to those in need. That's why we have the story of the good Samaritan. They challenge Jesus say, okay, what does it mean to love your neighbor? And he uses the extreme example of someone with a different religious background and a different ethnicity to say, okay, that person was a better neighbor than what you've shown. And so who do you love? The person in front of you. Anyone and everyone. Why? Because God's compassion is greater. His compassion is based on his power, not on our permission. So notice here that sometimes God sends a storm and other times God sends a fish. Sometimes we need a storm to wake us up. Now that's not to say that all storms, um, not to say that all storms are because of our decisions, but some of them are. But then sometimes he sends a fish to, to save us, even in the middle of that, even when we've gone overboard. I used to view Christianity as uh, the little marble maze game. Have you ever played those before? Those marble maze games where there's like holes everywhere and you just try to turn, you try to navigate and you try to see how far you can get before the ball drops. And that's how I view Christianity. If I follow this rule and I go this rule and I see how far I can go until the ball drops. But that's really not it at all. The God's compassion, God's love, God's relationship, his truth is available to all. And that ultimately his compassion is based on his power, not our permission. It was an unlikely prophet. Jonah disobeyed. It was an unlikely audience. He was called to go preach truth to Nineveh, the worst city at that time. It was an unlikely storm that, isn't it interesting that God sent a storm to calm Jonah's heart? It was an unlikely Obedience. It was the pagan sailors that obeyed. Even a fish obeyed God and Jonah did not. Think about that for a second. 
But then God had compassion on these pagan sailors, but he also had compassion on Jonah. He said, Jonah, I'm not done with you yet. And if you have a child that's run from God, if you have a friend or a spouse or a family member that has run from God, I want to encourage you that God's compassion, God's devotion is greater than any detour they can take. And his justice is, is corrective. It's not a penalty. It's corrective. And no matter how far someone is from God, God is never far from them. And that when we run from God, God actually runs to us. And that his compassion is based on his power, not our permission. And there's hope for everyone. So what does that mean for us? Two applications if you're taking notes. Number one is that we ultimately are like Jonah. We are like Jonah. We are. We've received a message from God. So we have the Bible. We've received his word. We've received a mission from God. It says, go, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love others as yourself. And then go and make disciples of all nations. We've received a message, we've received a mission. We get questioned about our identity, number three. They ask Jonah, Jonah, who are you? What do you do? What defines you? We get asked those same questions today. And then number four, we get challenged with our idols. Now, in pagan culture, it was their idol was more prevalent because you can name it. But I would argue that Jonah, based on his actions, had religion and his heritage as his idol. Even good things placed in the God spot equals bad consequences. So we are like Jonah because we've received a message from God that his love, his compassion, his grace is available to all. We received a mission from God to go to all the world and proclaim this message of the good news of the gospel. We get questioned about our identity. Who are you? Are you defined by what you do? Are you defined by a characteristic? Are you defined by your money? Are you defined by your status, your position? Or are you defined as a child of God? And then are you willing to face your idols? So we are, we are like Jonah, but ultimately Jesus is the greater Jonah. He's the greater Jonah. Let me read a passage to you. It comes from Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 um, to 41. Says, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Let's keep reading here. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment for this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is the greater Jonah. There's actually a story where Jesus was in a boat, and he was sleeping in the middle of a storm, but instead of being cast out into the water, he stands up and rebukes the storm. 
And then ultimately, where Jonah was trying to run from God and was thrown into the belly of the fish for three days for his sin, Jesus was thrown into the grave for three days for salvation. And see, substitution is actually the essence of both sin and salvation. When you sin, what you're saying is, I substitute myself and put myself in the place of God. I judge who should get compassion. I judge who is right. I judge off of my desires. That is sin. But just as substituting ourselves for God is sin, Jesus substituting his place for ours actually brings salvation. And so Jesus is the greater Jonah because he didn't just come to bring the word, he came as the word and he delivered us and brought salvation to demonstrate this truth that our God is good, our God is grace, our God is love and this goodness and this grace and this mercy is available for all people who humble themselves before him, amen? And so as the band comes up on stage, may we just trust that God's compassion is available to us, that it's based on his power and not our permission. Sin leads us to fall. Salvation leads us to freedom. Sin ultimately ruins relationships. Salvation redeems relationships. So wherever you are in your journey, May you dial into the spiritual GPS of your heart. That no matter how many wrong turns you've made, God is just quietly saying, recalculating. And if you want to know where to go from here, go pray and study. Go pray and study. Take the message of God and the mission of God, and then decide for yourself, will I run or will I repent? GPS, go, pray, study. What has God called you to do? Are you running from God? Do you know someone running from God? I'm here to tell you that his compassion, his love is available to you. His grace is available to you. If we're just ready to receive it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your son. God, we know that we are like Jonah, that if given the same circumstances, chances are we too would have run. That we would have gone and tried to run away from your word and from your mission. But God, your compassion is based on your power and not our permission. And so in an unlikely circumstance, through sending a storm or a fish. God, you brought salvation not only to Jonah, but to the people that he went and preached to. So God, I ask that wherever we are right now, may we remember that you came to save us. That as we take communion as a church right now, that if we pass the bread and the juice as a symbol of who you are, may we remember that your compassion is available for all. May we turn to you, may we repent of our sin, and may we just thank you for your grace and for your goodness, God. You are the only constant thing in this world. So let us put our trust in you. In your son's name we pray.